What's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Charlie is not here at my house today. We're normally at his house, but I am joined by Keith Knight, who is the managing editor over at the Libertarian Institute, and we're talking about your new book today, Keith. How's it going? It is going very well, Nate. Thank you for having me. Now, you got a new book called Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left progressivism. Give everyone a little bit of a brief overview of who you are, where you were politically, and where you are right now. I was a uh, progressive originally, but uh, what I spend most of the time doing now is uh, producing content for the Libertarian Institute. This is an organization with Scott Horton, Sheldon Richmond, Connor Freeman, and Kyle Anzalone. We try to create a free educational archive for all things freedom-related. So if you want to go to our website, type in any uh, issue that's in the news or anything, uh, even historical references, we try to provide an archive for uh, information on those things. I originally was a progressive because Barack Obama was the cool guy, and finally we get to get over this terrible hurdle of racism that the country, uh, that the original sin of the country has embraced. Um, It was very shocking to me at uh, his lack of ambition in closing down Guantanamo Bay Detention Center when that was the thing that got so many of us hooked. So I was wondering, it seems like a rather small promise. And, you know, you can always say we're going to restructure the economy and change the way everything works. But this seemed pretty doable. So when this was not even achieved, I started to question things. It didn't seem uh, like he was very ambitiously attacking it. And then the thing that just got me was the Affordable Care Act individual mandate. I remember hearing about it saying, I think people should probably have health insurance, but that's not the question. The question is, should they be forced by law to purchase this thing? And should they be put in jail if they uh, choose to opt out of it? And if they don't want to go to jail, technically the police will end up shooting them if they resist. Is it that important to do what is best for for people's own self-interest, allegedly, as if the people making these decisions know what's best for themselves, let alone a billion strangers? So it was really the Gitmo issue and the Affordable Care Act issue. Not to mention uh, Obama's last year in office, 2016, he dropped, according to the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, 26,000 bombs between Pakistan, Yemen, Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, just absolute uh, tragedy. So I was so let down uh, by this that I was willing to look into alternatives, came across Ron Paul, who recommended I read uh, The Law by Frederick Bastiat, and I just totally saw the uh, political landscape differently after that. So you got nine reasons why you left progressivism. One of the first things you talk about in the book is actually the uh, Pulse nightclub, right? What what happened there between the lie that we were all sold and what actually happened. So this was in to, uh, June of 2016. Barack Obama is the sitting president and Donald Trump is basically every headline everywhere. This was Hillary Clinton's Pied Piper strategy to support Donald Trump in hopes that she could run against him as opposed to Ted Cruz or Ben Carson. So the two guys, Obama and Trump, were all over the news and uh, what happened was, in June 12th of 2016, Omar Mateen entered the Pulse nightclub, murdered 49 people, injured 53, and held the survivors hostage. And here is how Barack Obama communicated uh, the incident to uh, the population. He said, 
This was an attack on the LGBT community. Americans were targeted because we're a country that has learned to welcome everyone, no matter who you are or who you love, and hatred towards any people because of sexual orientation, regardless of where it comes from, is a betrayal of what's best in us. So Obama calls this the biggest mass shooting in U.S. history, which the caveat would be one individual doing it because, of course, the Wounded Knee Massacre was far worse. The My Lai Massacre was far worse, but, uh, of course, they never have uh, that standard for themselves. One way to actually falsify this theory as to, well, the lesson is don't hate homosexuals. You can look at the words of the murderer because in a terrorist act, you don't want to conceal your motives and keep people guessing. You want a uh, quick path to popularity in drawing attention to a message. So Mateen actually said in his 911 call, you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They are killing a lot of innocent people. What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying? You need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. They are killing too many children. They are killing too many women. He goes on like this for roughly 23 minutes. There was actually one news station out of Florida who uh, gave a small uh, interview to one of the victims who said, yeah, well, he was saying that we were bombing his country and that's why he didn't like America and he was getting us back for that. Other than that, you had the total lie that Barack Obama was perpetuating and Donald Trump uh, embraced the same narrative because we get to hate Islam and that's why you know Republicans get to justify wars in the Middle East. Barack Obama gets to take the arbitrary divide of, well, this is a difference between heterosexuals and homosexuals and uh, straights need to, you know, get on the peaceful page uh, and uh, start living in a uh, civilized manner. So the arbitrary divide was gay versus straight when there was a genuine divide. There were people who were using violence against other people. And um, so you actually had peaceful people and violent people, a much more accurate divide. The problem is if you divide people based on peaceful and violent, you see that the mass amount of violence is being perpetrated by the U.S. government. That year alone, uh, the U.S. dropped 24,000 bombs between Iraq and Syria. So it's not like he was just some paranoid guy making uh, this up. So that was uh, the probably the quintessential example of arbitrary divides that I could come up with. But other ones you get are uh, Russian versus American. Progressives are always pushing this. Rich versus poor, which is the equivalent of saying uh, you are much wealthier than the average Haitian. Therefore, uh, Haitians need to have a revolt against you, confiscate your property, and uh, have just restitution. Uh, these are uh, th these are totally fake. Black versus white is a, another divide. Notice how they never mention uh, the income gap between whites and Asians or the fact that Asians are much more likely to be accepted for a home loan uh, as opposed to whites. So they just pick two groups and constantly divide each other. My approach to this uh, or hopeful solution is that instead of having these accidents of birth uh, divides among the population. We can actually divide people based on who is honest, peaceful, and cooperative versus people who commit fraud, are dishonest, and use violence to achieve their ends. I would assume you'd say this is an intentional divide that they create so we don't pay attention to all of the horrible things that they are doing. Do you think that this is just clear intent by the government to keep people divided? Well, yeah. I mean, the uh, the, the Zelensky-Putin divide is probably uh, the, the most recent valuable fake one, where you have Vladimir Zelensky, who has 
outlawed 11 competing political parties, nationalized the media, canceled his upcoming election. He bombed Poland on November 15th of 2022. And the whole justification for the war is we can't let Putin take over any parts of Ukraine because then he'll act in such a way that's tyrannical against the population. Well, everything you're terrified of Putin doing, Zelensky has already done, which was ultimately caused by NATO expansion. So this is another fake divide. It's not that we should unconditionally support this anti-democratic guy versus that anti-democratic guy. And it's worth noting that democracy is basically a lynch mob uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, having any background in, you know, individual rights or freedom of contract or anything. So, uh, yeah, this is a uh, c complete fake divide that the government uses. The general reason is once they can divide people, that gives them a justification to coercively rule over others. Why do I need this big Soviet empire? Well, because of the kulaks and because of the fascists. Why do the National Socialists need so much power? Well, because of the Jews. Why do the progressives need so much power? Well, because and the male privileges of the world. Always a fake justification. And even if those things do exist, it never, never justifies one group having a uh, monopoly on violence to solve the alleged issue, whether it's real or fabricated. Could we just uh, take a second to talk about the, going back to Ukraine? How crazy is it that they literally bombed a major piece of European infrastructure and then it was all blamed on their opponent and then we're supposed to all just ignore the fact that the Nord Stream pipeline was clearly taken out by Ukraine and we're just supposed to act like Zelensky probably had no idea that it happened and and then just move on uh, from it and never mention it again. I mean, that's a pretty crazy thing, right? A NATO member was attacked. This has to be <laughs> like at the top. We got to get to the bottom of this. But of course, they uh, couldn't be less interested. Whereas if it were a true divide, NATO countries versus others, well, then you really got to look into that to protect the NATO countries. But that clearly is just a front for we want this as a potential excuse in the future for a bigger power grab. The mm. mind's ability to rationalize, I think even the best people say AOC is very well intended. When she got up there, you know, of course, saying defund the police. And then uh, when she got the opportunity after January 6th to uh, vote on whether the police should have an increase or decrease in funding, she goes, well, I did vote to increase police funding, but this had a lot to do with pensions that were promised to the police. So, of course, she's a complete radical, needs to rock the boat. Once she's in the boat, she says absolutely no rocking <laughs> at all. So the mind's ability to justify even it's not just that the current people in power are all Bohemian Grove members who are evil. Even that could be the case. The problem is even the most well-intentioned people will rationalize their ability to have such a power grab if they were put in the position. That's why the free market's so important because people are still self-interested. But in that case, they still have to work uh, and create value for customers and employees in order to acquire money and power. How about another, uh, what's another reason we can get on to that you, uh, that you love progressivism? Do we call that number one, that arbitrary divides? Yeah, and uh, the second one that I chose is the unavoidable contradiction. This just, th there's actually two parts to this. One is uh, they use the word contract uh, so, uh, in, in such a weaselly manner. Mm. Uh, they use the word contract to describe the relationship between a democratic state and the citizenry. However, uh, however, this doesn't imply that there's any obligation on the other end of the contract. So this means, well, it is a contract, you know, socially. So if you don't pay taxes, 
or if you don't abide by regulations, you're not upholding your end of the contract. So that's why they get to put you in jail. It's not like they're just randomly jailing people. You didn't uphold your end of the contract. But the other end of this is, well, the state in exchange keeps me safe. So what happens if the government doesn't keep me safe, say, in Hawaii and uh, at the uh, Pearl Harbor uh, location? Well, what happens is government gets a ton more money and a ton more power. It's not like government just goes obsolete or they don't protect us on 9-11. What happened? George Bush's approval rating goes to 91%. So we get the opposite of a contract. Politicians never go to jail if they don't keep you safe. It's not like you get to opt out of chipping in to the state with taxes if they don't uh, keep you safe. So this, far from being a contract, is just a unilateral obligation. So that is one aspect of this. But the contradiction is the fact that progressives are terrified of there being monopolies in the private sector. So they say, well, we have to have antitrust laws, and if one business gets too big, it has to be regulated out of existence more or less. They then turn around and advocate that the state have a monopoly on compulsory education, a monopoly on guns, a monopoly on the money supply, a monopoly on the right to regulate commercial interactions between people. And anyone who wants the slightest bit of competition, even between the 50 states, is called a secessionist who loves slavery and Robert E. Lee. The point in this chapter is to say that the very criticism of monopolies, that they lead to higher cost products and services and lower quality than we'd otherwise have under competition, also applies to the state, far more uh, to the state than the private sector because you cannot legally opt out of uh, funding the state. But of course, the uh, the state only gets involved in things that the private sector just could not produce. Isn't that right? I mean, the, they're fixing market failures. Yeah, until you realize the very first road, even the Philadelphia Lancaster Turnpike, was privately built uh, going back to the late uh, 1970s. We have uh, places like Vinci Concessions today, which are uh, just providing alternatives. And uh, that's what uh, makes me so optimistic, that it's not necessarily uh, the market exchanges based on consent and mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges are so much more efficient. I don't know if we have to convince too many people to use these alternatives. I learned this lesson when uh, I worked at a tech company where they got ransomware and their entire business was just under siege, uh, just overnight. And not a single one of them, they weren't a bunch of libertarians. None of them said, oh, quick, call 911. We've been hacked. They <laughs> knew that, te well, technically, the police says we'll protect you and everything. But that's so inefficient that they actually called uh, a private IT company who used private uh, antivirus software called Sentinel One to keep them safe in the future. They use private security with Google Drive backups. They use PayPal private security to make sure their financials were uh, were properly secured. They contacted their private banking institutions to make sure that their uh, funds weren't accessed without authorization. So in the face of the biggest threat to their person and property, that has ever happened to them. None of them said, call the NSA, call the FBI, call the CIA, call 911. They just went to private organizations. And that's what I think is going to have to happen with places like uh, Vinci Concessions has a very um, uh, impressive construction company that's building railroads in uh, places like Paris and uh, Asia as well. So uh, yes, uh, basically anything that can be done uh, coercively can be much better achieved through the voluntary process. And what's great is that IT company, uh, whatever company they went with to protect them in the future, if that company doesn't protect them in the future, uh, they could just go to another company who could do it better 
And they might even get some money back or something from the company that they're with right now, you know? And that's the great thing about the private market. All right, what's the uh, next reason you can give me here that uh, you've left progressivism? So the next reason uh, came to me from uh, Lysander Spooner's book, No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, where he says, all right, um, this title is chaptered Consent of the Governed and Gay Marriage. So Spoon, uh, progressives will say that, well, democracy is just someone ruling over someone else, but democracy, we are the state. But Spooner mentions that, well, when the Constitution was written, no one alive today was alive back then, and not everyone could vote back then. It was a very small number of people. And even if everyone at that time said, this document is brilliant, I endorse it 100%, how, in what way does that actually bind future generations? Could any organizations do this? If it's so legitimate, well then, Walmart, the Koch brothers, Amazon, the Red Cross, Goodwill, all these companies should have the ability to issue contracts based on, well, your great-grandpa agreed to this, so now we're going to impose it on you coercively. So that is uh, vitally important when it comes to the idea of uh, why uh, Democrats and progressives have a double standard for the state. So I really thought that uh, the gay marriage issue under Barack Obama uh, was justified, more or less. And here is how progressives generally justified uh, gay marriage at the level of the Supreme Court, saying they are adults and they can do what they want with their lives. Straight people can get married, so gay couples should be able to as well. It's their bodies, their choice. Your personal opinions shouldn't stop other people from pursuing their happiness. It's such a small thing for straights to live with, whereas gays can get a great deal of fulfillment by being married. And all bad things that can happen in a gay marriage can also happen in a straight marriage, and those shouldn't be illegal. So all it really took for me to abandon progressivism was take this concept of any exchange or commercial contract between two consenting adults is legitimate. I just took that principle and extended it to the commercial realm. So uh, that's why at the Libertarian Institute, we advocate decriminalizing all capitalist uh, acts between consenting adults. <laughs> so you actually took something that progressives were arguing from, and that sent you away from progressivism because uh, they somehow only seem to apply that to specific things. How do you get away with, you think in your mind, Picking and choosing what situations principles apply and do not apply. Have you ever tried doing that yourself? I certainly have <laughs> tried. Once you're in that uh, level of thinking, once you get out, it's hard to, uh, to, to go back in. But I think it's really about um, people's ability to get a green light from someone who they respect. So when Hillary Clinton says that I support the you know Defense of Marriage Act, which means gay marriage is not going to be the law of the land, Versus when she says, oh, yeah, I've completely always supported gay marriage. Credit to Anderson <laughs> Cooper, who even called her out on this. Um, Barack Obama, of course, said, uh, I think marriage has uh, been defined properly as, uh, you know, between a man and a woman. And then it was under his administration that uh, gay marriage is legalized at the level of the Supreme Court. So once people are given a green light, they can justify almost anything. And it has a lot to do with uh, the emotional connection they have. If, if you've never met a gay person then maybe it's just something that would never cross your mind. But if you do know someone who you care about and then it turns out they're gay, well, you can, uh, you're can you much more likely to sympathize with them. So uh, it, I think it's definitely a mix between uh, getting the emotional connection of what's important and how it really can damage someone's life, uh, state interference, 
and uh, getting the green light from uh, someone like Barack Obama. Look at uh, the, the GOP. Uh, people like Vivek Ramaswamy are gaining popularity after they say we should abolish the FBI and fire half of all government employees based on the last digit of their social security number. You <laughs> never could have assumed that uh, under the George Bush administration. The average Republican never would have gone for abolishing the FBI or the CIA or the ATF. But uh, w but now they've been given a green light by cool, confident Vivek, and a lot of them are uh, on board. So I think uh, that's actually how people make decisions. Sidebar here, given that we could not have been talking about this uh, 20 years ago, or likely wouldn't have been talking about this, and we are right now, does that mean we're headed in the right direction? Are you hopeful? Or is it just because things have gotten so terrible? I am uh, definitely hopeful, especially with uh, people like Javier Malay using a populist mm. Rothbardian message to communicate the true divide in society, the parasites who achieve their ends through violence, whether they're uh, private or public, and uh, people who are uh, productive in the marketplace. Because even the rich versus poor divide that progressives use doesn't differentiate between thieves who get a ton of money and people who make a product or service, like Cornelius Vanderbilt giving railroad and steamship access to millions of people, whereas only kings had access to it before, or Henry Ford making the car much more affordable. They put those people in the same category as Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and the Dick Cheney's, who are just lying, murderous thieves, more or less. So, yeah, uh, once people uh, got a taste of a true divide from someone who is really passionate like Javier Malay, I uh, am optimistic in the long run. It is really cool to see that happening. I just hope that we don't have to get uh, as in uh, terrible of a position as Argentina did before we decide to listen to someone who's talking about these things. Uh, Please, no. Hopefully, hopefully that doesn't happen. All right, what's another reason that you left? Tom Hartman is a uh, progressive, and uh, he had a video, and I remember seeing the title. It was something like The Fatal Flaw of Milton Friedman Libertarianism, and I saw it, and I go, oh, son of a gun. He's thought of something that I have never come across. This is basically it. We're going to have to wave the white flag. And he said the problem is something called market failure. And uh, this is uh, the reality that we live in because when you go to purchase a computer, the people selling the computer have a lot more knowledge than you do. Therefore, there's a power differentiate a power differential between the customer and the producer, and the state needs to come in on behalf of the customer and rectify this uh, information asymmetry. They also come in on the side of the producers when it comes to things like tariffs when they don't want to compete with Germany or Japan or anyone else, but usually coming in on behalf of the consumer. The problem is that uh, while this does apply to the market, it applies far more so to the political realm. All voters are not equally informed. The average voter is very uninformed compared to how things really work with the average politician. So I guess we need the United Nations to step in and cure this information asymmetry. However, whoever's working at the UN uh, is going to have a big information asymmetry with the average person in any country on the planet. Consider the asymmetry between information you have access to versus uh, someone who has access to classified information. There is huge information asymmetry in the political realm, but at least in the free market, you're able to disassociate with people, and the process of competition decreases uh, the amount of information asymmetry that will exist. That's why the market provides things like Yelp, Google Reviews, um, Good Housekeeping, 
uh, reviews. You can go on YouTube and get almost any product that's available. You can find a review from someone who's trying to develop a good reputation. So information asymmetry will always exist. The question is, should we have it in the voluntary sector or the coercive sector? And I uh, try to make the case that uh, we should have it in the voluntary sector. Are you a, what you would call an anarchist, anarcho-capitalist? What would you identify as right now? Do you think there should be a government? Oh, uh, certainly not a government uh, in the form of uh, there being a state which uh, monopolizes uh, certain industries. The example I give with uh, security, uh, I think, is really uh, probably the best approach to how even uh, the very thing that's, that, uh, you know, since the days of Thomas Hobbes, to stop a war of all against all, we need a monopoly on violence. Turns out uh, competing uh, private protection services are going to be much more efficient, and they won't have the ability to conscript people and won't have a legal double standard when it comes to uh, killing civilians. So, uh, yeah, I, I just don't have any double standards, so I don't uh, advocate the existence of a state at all. What number would you say we're on right now? Did I lose count? Let me see. So uh, that was Before. the fourth one. And okay. the uh, the fifth one, I titled this section, College, Four Years of Work for $0 an Hour. So the progressive will uh, proudly say that all work is worth $15 an hour. So this means that college should necessarily be illegal because people do a ton of work, both in class and homework, for four years. And sometimes they not only don't get compensated, they have to pay thousands of dollars in order to perform all this work. Well, it turns out there's no difference in principle between working at college and working at an internship for a firm or working at McDonald's and not getting compensated. So my point in this is, if we can find an example of a ton of people doing something for a very long amount of time that is considered work, which pays $0 an hour, not just a dollar or two less than the federal minimum wage, but if we could find an example of something like that, that progressives advocate, well, then certainly uh, people can work for $1 an hour at their first job. And it turns out that we see a uh, big disparity between the average uh, income of a 16-year-old, 26-year-old, and 36-year-old. This is not by design because the minimum wage still applies to the 16-year-old and the 36-year-old. What happens is people gain on-the-job experience and employers are competing for uh, cus uh, for both customers and employees, so they try to attract them with uh, higher wages. And they're able to be more productive because of capital investment in things like machinery and computers, which make each employee worth more. So the case is that, on principle, uh, the minimum wage uh, should not be respected at all. It stops people from getting uh, on-the-job experience, which leads to them ha having higher incomes in the future. And it raises the cost of doing business when there's something like a minimum wage. So this means we have fewer businesses. We have fewer access to products and services as customers. We have higher prices and lower quality than would otherwise exist in the absence of a minimum wage. And then you have to say, well, everyone will be getting one cent an hour. It turns out a microscopic amount of people currently earn the minimum wage when working full time. And even the people who do, do not earn it for more than a few years until they're able to get a raise or get a promotion or something like that. Not because all employers are just, uh, you know, totally selfless because they are self-interested. They want to attract the best employees available. So, uh, that chapter five is just my case against the minimum wage. Um, I remember hearing Ron Paul 
was like the very first person who I heard uh, come out against this. And I just couldn't believe it. It, it, it was something I like, uh, I'm like, how could this idiot not support at least some minimum wage? So that's why I had to dedicate a whole chapter to, uh, to, to making the case. But uh, the other example uh, that I provide of uh, I- employers are innovative and taking employee considerations into account in the absence of state coercion is uh, the amount of uh, workplace deaths I cite on page 18 before and after the uh, in uh, before the Occupational Safety and Health Administration was uh, w- was implemented. They will brag and say workplace deaths have gone down since OSHA. What they don't look at are uh, the three decades preceding OSHA, where uh, at place uh, work deaths were uh, falling at a much faster rate. Uh, of course, they're always good at coming in at the tail end and taking credit for something. Uh, by the way, I think the number now, a uh, recent article we just talked about for the New York Times is 68,000 people make the federal minimum wage. Uh, at this time, it's uh, less than one out of every thousand uh, workers, I believe. And a great New York Times piece actually making the argument that the minimum wage does not matter, that it's actually the market that will drive wages and uh, people have to pay what they have to pay if they want to get employees. Um, I think it was, uh, man, I can't remember if it was Bob Murphy or who it was that posted this article that uh that we talked about the other day, but it was a good one. It stuck under the radar there. You don't normally see those things from the New York Times. Uh, nice, uh, long article making the case that the federal minimum wage doesn't matter. Uh, it's pretty good. I remember, I think one of the first times I heard this was in basic economics. Uh, you know, my Thomas Sowell and the, the real minimum wage is zero. And it really rung true with me. I lost my first job because of a minimum wage hike in Illinois. And uh, while the governor was boasting about how much more money everyone was getting paid. Uh, I didn't have a job anymore because uh, I wasn't worth the 50 cent pay bump that the other people got. They decided they'd have two people on the floor instead of three. And it was a small, small location, small establishment, and they just didn't have the money to do it. And I was the uh, probably the worst employee that they had there. I had the least experience and I was the youngest person there too. And then I was unemployed. And then they got to boast about how everyone was making more money. And that's actually the way that works out. The real minimum wage is zero. Of course. And that's why people <laughs> like uh, the two former CEOs of Walmart, H. Lee Scott and Doug McMullen, have come out in favor of raising the minimum wage, which the average progressive might be totally shocked at, but any student of economics realizes, yeah, they'll pay a little more to smash virtually all their uh, competition. So, mm-hmm. uh, the, of course, this is more uh, domestic imperialism that the progressive coerces among the population for the greater good. And then even when the most vulnerable, least experienced people suffer, they never even apologize or reconsider. One of the same reasons that uh, Facebook is running or Meta is running ads right now saying that they support Congress uh making rules, passing a law that people under 16 have to get parental permission to download apps and to use apps. Of course, they can just do that for Instagram and Facebook if they want to. You don't have to get Congress to do this. You can choose to do this. But what if their competition doesn't follow along? Well, that wouldn't be good. So they'd like to force everyone to do this uh, so they don't have to uh, compete with those people and Maybe damage some of the other. The big companies always want more regulations, of course. It's exactly. the exact, but, exact opposite of what progressives think. Look at how the Security and Exchange Commission basically gave YouTube the greatest gift ever by uh, dro- driving library 
into uh, bankruptcy, Jeremy mm. Kaufman's organization. I mean, God, the millions of dollars that he was talking about uh, that he had to spend on lawyers, that's what stifles competition. That's what creates the very oligopolies and monopolies that uh, the progressives say that uh, they're protecting us from. I do want to shout out here. I know this is a little bit separate, but Odyssey is the best video platform that there is. I don't know if you've used it to upload things, uh, yeah. but it is the most user-friendly. It it reacts so quickly. It's great for the creator side and the user side. Like it works better than every platform, better than Rumble, better than YouTube. Um, I just wanted to give that a shout out because whoever designed that thing, they did a good job. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I am on uh, Odyssey as well. I've been using it since uh, Jeremy came on my show probably three or four years ago. Let's see. We're on number five. Let's go to number six. What's that? Equality and the iron law of oligarchy. So the progressive will have a North Star when it comes to uh, saying, well, some policies should be enacted and others shouldn't. The ones that should be enacted are ones that promote equality. And we know an injustice has occurred when there is massive inequality. The problem is, is that uh, the iron law of oligarchy is something that is uh, within all people and all organizations, regardless of even uh, economic structure. This is why under communism, Chairman Mao had much more power than the average uh, person in China. It's why uh, under you know Nixon's regime at uh, the, the same time in the much more capitalist America, Nixon still had a lot more power than uh, the average American. So here's how the uh, Iron Law of Oligarchy is summarized. All complex organization, regardless of how democratic they are when started, eventually develop into oligarchies since no sufficiently large and complex organization can function purely as a direct democracy. Power within an organization will always get delegated to individuals within that group, elected or otherwise. So the lesson here is that anytime a progressive says, well, we need uh, to have a healthcare system which is based on democracy, we have to uh, have people voting, this way they're empowered and they can choose what's best for them. The problem is, is that any great thing in society that we have, cars, microphones, computers, internet connections, printers, cell phones, these are not the result of there being a huge vote and then people collectively deciding what's in their best interest. It's a small elite of experts who compete for the voluntary dollars of the average person. So any progressive solution that relies on we need to give more political power to the average person is not necessarily going to empower that person at all. The classic example that's used by uh, the founder of this idea, I think his last, his last name is McKells, Robert McKells, uh, is the example of a labor union. So uh, progressives will say it's wrong to have a bourgeoisie and a proletariat. There's only a few of them, and rule by the few is very bad. So we need to form a union. The problem is not every member of the you know workers goes to the union meeting. Not every one of them speaks up with their ideas of how the union should be run. Not all of them are uh, equally persuasive. Um, and uh, not all of them are able to communicate their good ideas in such a way as to really motivate people to get them to vote for this, uh, uh, to vote for, you know, this sector of how the union should be run versus uh, other methods. So because you have such a drastic uh, range in personalities between union members, some members of the union are going to have much more power than the others. And then this is why, you know, you have someone like Jimmy Hoffa having tons of power within a union 
whereas the average union member did not have that much power at all. So the iron law of oligarchy is what essentially makes progressivism a uh, fool's errand. We cannot have equality on the basis of everyone chipping in, and people shouldn't uh, have an equal say in things. Imagine if, just insert whatever your favorite uh, television show is, imagine if instead of comedic experts writing and competing for viewers' attention, we all voted on who should get cast, what the script should be. It would be so inefficient and the end product wouldn't even be good because you'd have a lot of non-experts contributing uninformed, ignorant opinions and then not bearing the cost if they end up producing a bad product. So um, the importance of recognizing uh, the uh, inherent inequality between beings is uh, vitally important because it's going to exist in under capitalism, socialism, communism, syndicalism. You're always going to have massive inequality. But the importance of the free market is it takes this inequality and turns the oligarchy into servants of the consumers. So when the oligarchy, whether it's Blockbuster, MySpace, Sears, or Kodak, even the most powerful people, if they don't meet consumer demand, they can end up going under. Exactly. Uh, so what's important is that those people don't have a monopoly on violence in the way that they can just keep their <laughs> keep their rule no matter what si type of service they're providing. What's funny is as we're going through and you're talking, I'm like, oh, I'm going to ask this as a question. And you basically tick off every question that I would ask about everything uh, by the time we get there. <laughs> so um, that's you're really you're really good at making sure you cover all your bases when you're talking about these things is what i'm saying so uh, good good job on that what's the next one number 7 i titled this voter suppression versus economic suppression so the progressive will say um if you know, you were to uh, ask the average progressive, shouldn't uh, we make sure that uh, we protect voting by making it so you have to have a driver's license and a birth certificate and you just have to pass a test in order to vote? You know, just to uh, make sure that people aren't voting ignorantly. Immediately, they say, well, who's going to run this test? It's going to be totally biased. Second, Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos are not going to be hurt by this. It's poor people who don't have access uh, or who don't have the spare time to go get this license, to go find their birth certificate. Heaven knows where mine is, come to think of it. <laughs> and uh, and this test, well, I don't care if it's 15 questions or so. That's one more hurdle that stops the person from being able to vote. Well, if you were stopped from voting, it is not. it might have a psychological effect on you, but whether your vote is taken and put into the ballot box or the paper shredder, it's not going to have an effect on the outcome. However... Economic suppression, which is the uh, concept of needing multiple licenses and permissions from the state in order to start trading with people in the commercial realm. Well, who do you think that hurts? We don't see Warren Buffett on his knees begging, please take away the licenses because I, I don't know if he's evil or not, but because he can afford it, that it never crosses his mind. Whereas the people who experience lockdowns, those small businesses who went out of business, not Walmart, not Amazon, but all the small businesses – well, it really disproportionately affects them. So for the same reason uh, progressives don't want licensing in the voting realm because it hurts the poor and most vulnerable, you certainly don't want it in the economic realm where it actually has an effect on your everyday life. It stops you from getting the job you want, stops you from getting into a network of people who have the skills and experience who you want to associate with. This is a far greater crime than uh, voter suppression. So for the same reason you should be you know, against Jim Crow laws or uh, anything that requires uh, some people to have a vote and others to have to obey them. There's no difference uh, in the economic realm. Here's the example I use of economic suppression. 
on uh, page 27. I cite a title from Reason Magazine, Jay Austin's Beautiful Illegal Tiny House. At a cost that ranges from $10,000 to $50,000, tiny homes like the Matchbox could help ease the shortage of affordable housing in the capital city. This is taking place in Washington, D.C. Heating and cooling costs are negligible. Rainwater catchment systems help to make the home self-sustaining. There's an attractive option to the very sort of residents who the city attracts in abundance. Single, young professionals without a lot of stuff who aren't ready to take on a large mortgage. But the tiny houses come with one enormous catch. They're illegal in violation of several codes in Washington, D.C.'s zoning ordinance. Among the many requirements in the 34 chapters and 600 pages of codes are mandates to finding lot sizes, room sizes, alleyway widths, and accessory dwelling units that prevent tiny houses from being anything more than a part-time residence. So you are coercively stopped through economic regulations under the guise of helping you from getting the house you want to live in, and this is seen as helping you, but suppressing someone's vote, which is never going to change the outcome of an election, that's seen as like the worst thing in all of human history. So one way to represent people is to give them a one in 10 million vote every four years, but that's not really representing them. You can much more accurately represent people by giving them the economic freedom to make their own choices. Yes, it'd be nicer if they lived in the Great Gatsby Mansion, but for people who can't afford it, these ten dollars to $50,000 houses are great options for people who don't have that many skills and they're not going to live there forever. They just need a part-time residence. So, uh, Seeing this case, this real-world example of how these regulations, which are how we stick it to the rich and make sure they're not taking advantage of us, actually, yes, they hurt the rich, and that's not a good thing, but they also hurt the very vulnerable people that you're trying to protect. So uh, that is my case against uh, economic suppression, and that it's not just akin to voter suppression. It's a thousand times worse because you're actually affecting the person's overall livelihood. We also— uh I was going to say, I was going to ask earlier, I mean, don't these licenses protect people? And even they protect poor people, probably. I mean, you wouldn't want your doctor to not have a license or name whatever scary thing I can come up with. And so, therefore, the governor should, the government should uh, offer licenses for occupations, right? I mean, we just, we can't have a system where people don't have licenses. That's scary. Not scary at all. Uh, what's scary is there being a monopoly on who gets to provide the license and give their stamp of approval for uh, what is allowed to be traded in the marketplace. So there is no such thing as having no standards. It's like, do we have standards or do we not? Anytime you interact with someone in the marketplace, their freedom to disassociate from you is a standard. And that's why it's important we have standards for uh, the private institutions that uh, we give our money to. So the question is, should the standards be based on competition or monopoly, where I can look at your credentials, I could see who you're certified by, well, who, does, who certifies the certifiers. So uh, you constantly have this competition of uh, uh, competing standards. Uh, in order to attract employees and customers. So that's one way to do it. And another way is to have a monopoly, which is the Food and Drug Administration or the Department of Agriculture. So as dangerous as it can be to have people voluntarily doing things, it's much worse to have a monopoly where it takes four years of schooling in order to get a license to uh, become a doctor. Well, there are a lot of nurses who don't do as much work as the doctor. They should not need as much schooling. There are people who do. 
uh, research online because maybe they can't afford to go to college. Those people should not be forcibly stopped from getting on the job experiences and working at uh, medical organizations. So uh, the false divide is standards or no standards. The real divide is either we have a monopoly on standards, a state, or we have uh, competing standards. What people need to realize is if a, say, a private organization were giving their stamp of approval on on someone, say, on a drug, uh, they were given their stamp of approval. Well, if that turned out to kill people, uh, that company would go out of business. They have a vested interest in doing a good job and only putting their stamp of approval on something uh, that isn't going to kill people. Whereas the government has a monopoly and they're just going to keep doing it. Uh, a private company wants to be able to keep getting money from organizations so they can put their stamp of approval on it or they'll go out of business. And that's why it's better to have a voluntary system. Exactly. And it, even if they're a private organization that does bad, I mean, Jim Cramer is famous for having terrible <laughs> predictions and he's in the private sector. At least no one makes me coercively give my money to Jim Cramer. So yes, he's in the private sector. Yes, he's wrong. But at least I get to disassociate with that psycho. <laughs> I think I have a weird prediction. I think this is his year. I think it's his. <laughs> I've been seeing a lot of people post about it and I'm I'm having a feeling that this is going to be his year. We'll see. Um, I, saw I don't that. know. He said 2024 is going to be great. And Sally Akeris <laughs> just said, RIP everyone. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's talking about, uh, he's, ta he's talked about Bitcoin. He finally came around on Bitcoin, which is uh, not no! good. You know? Yeah. He said that uh, there's no stopping Bitcoin. And, uh, and so we'll see, we'll see what happens now. Uh, he's started talking good about Tesla saying Tesla's in a great position. I'm like, Oh crap, Elon, you're screwed. We're going to lose Twitter over this somehow. I don't know. Um, all right, let's get these last couple out of the way here. I know I've, hold, I've held you for a long time today. Let's Number see, eight is, uh, yeah, it, I titled it Government Provided Does Not Mean Universal. So the progressive will frequently say, we need universal education and we need uh, universal health care. This is basically saying, uh, I want everyone to have a thing instead of just some people having access to a thing. But so if the goal is to have everyone access something, that doesn't tell you what the process should be for achieving that goal. So most people have access to books, not because there's a book law of universal book, but because in the private market, places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and publishing houses have decreased the cost of books to make them more affordable. When it comes to things like accessing free universal education, places like Internet Archive, libertarianinstitute.org, and wikipedia.com and odyssey.com are far better at giving people a free education, as well as YouTube. Uh, Got to give them credit. They have a lot of educational materials along with the Khan Academy. So just because you want something universal, probably the last place you would want to provide this pr product or service is the state who doesn't have an incentive to meet consumer demand. So the question that I bring to uh, the mind of uh, the progressive is, government currently controls the justice system. Would you say that we currently have free, universal, guaranteed justice? And they go, well, uh, no, it's actually run by white supremacists who basically hunt <laughs> uh, people of color uh, for fun. Okay, well, uh, that's the police. How about uh, the soldiers? Uh, do we have free universal guaranteed military? And they're like, no, we spend way too much on the military. Okay, so immediately you see that just because government do pays for something doesn't mean it's free. The soldiers get paid. And if the state controlled all of healthcare, the nurses and the doctors would get paid. You'd still have to 
build hospitals, and those cost money. And those allocate scarce resources away from other ends. So people are still making decisions where some people get what they want and others do not get what they want. So the goal in this chapter is just to uh, strip the progressive of the confidence of, I think things should be free and universal when it comes to things like healthcare and education. There is no such thing. And if you want more people to have access to something, you want to make sure it's in the voluntary sector uh, as far as uh, provision goes. Yeah, we do. You know, we do a pretty good job with food. We'd all die without food and uh, we don't have the, the government providing this free universal McDonald's uh, for everyone, but we've done a pretty good job here in America of making sure everyone's got plenty of food. And so that's always my good example because it's healthcare is something that's very important. People would die without healthcare. Well, every single person in the U.S. would die without food. And we found a way to provide that uh, very plentifully here in the U.S. and the private market uh, for, for fairly cheap. I think, by the way, we've done a pretty good job of bullying, of cyberbullying Nina Turner and the clarifying when she says free. I've seen her a few times put at the point of service in, in her post because she, I think we've all collectively, freely, voluntarily decided to cyberbully her into not calling things free anymore. And I just wanted to present that as a win for, for all of us. We've done a great job. <laughs> you know, Nate, it just occurred to me that Ruth's Chris Steakhouse is free at the point of service. The other day, I ordered a steak, and they brought it to me. I mean, later, they charged me. Yeah. But at the point <laughs> of when it was served, I didn't have mm -hmm. to swipe a credit card. So I guess Ruth's Chris is free. And Apple is uh, is free. I uh, just walked into the place, and they gave me the phone. Now, the next uh, 15th of the month, they did send me a bill. But at the point of service... Mm -hmm. It was free. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 the Zoom so call was free. The Zoom call was free at the point of service. I paid uh, paid a couple weeks ago for this <laughs> Zoom membership. Uh, it, they didn't charge me anything to do this call today. So the it's free at the point of service. Idiots. <laughs> racist idiots like Nina Turner. <laughs> she was on the Joe Walsh show saying that, yeah, we've run the numbers and uh, reparations should be uh, about uh, 13 to 15 trillion dollars that's what uh, the, the current experts are uh, are estimating the idea that you should take money from one race to give it to another because a microscopic member of one race some time ago committed acts of atrocities against the other is just so psychotic that this idiot racist psycho has any influence but uh she's uh, got her own show at uh the, at the young turks now and jank uger's running for president so she's got uh, quite a few followers which uh which is odd you'd think that a population that has free guaranteed universal income would be so brilliant with all the free <laughs> education they get that they could never fall for such a racist crap by the way uh, conveniently enough reparations are the only debt she thinks people owe <laughs> Yeah, really. Uh, loans you chose to take out, you're not responsible. No, no. Slavery you never participated in, oh, that's on yeah. you. That's on you. <laughs> that's You'll on never you. forget you, about that you one. Gotta, you got to yeah. pay up. That is your responsibility. None of the other ones are your responsibility. <laughs> I All actually right. had not looked at it like that. That's hilarious. <laughs> what is, uh, what's number nine? <laughs> number nine is the alternative. So it's like, 
Well, all right, you libertarians are just against everything. Uh, what is something that you're for? And I try to make the case that we should be for uh, anarchism. And this means anything that is achieved in the voluntary sector based on the mutually beneficial voluntary exchange principle between uh, consenting adults. What I do in this section is I ask people, uh, professors of economics and philosophy, Art Cardin, Jason Brennan, Brian Kaplan, I say, well, a lot of uh, criticism ex uh, exists of the free market. There's greed. There are these dog-eat-dog -dog mentalities. There's information asymmetry, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, the problem is all of these uh, also apply to the state. Are there any unique criticisms of the free market? And uh, with these experts, if I may say, uh, all of them basically say, you know, every single one of those criticisms does apply to the free market, but it applies to everyone everywhere all the time, especially people who are uh, in positions of political power. So I make the case that there is an actual alternative, not just we relentlessly bash the left or anything, but having a uh, anarchist system really does uh, lead us to a position where there's social cooperation. So even at the moment of, say, you're reading this book by yourself, what you're actually doing is uh, engaging with all the people at Amazon and Ingram Spark who helped to make the book, all the people who I used to get this computer to write the book on, using the Libertarian Institute website, which uh, – allowed me to publish the book, we're constantly engaged in the social cooperation between millions of people. That is being for something as opposed to just saying, oh, we're against everything. So the question is not should things be done in isolation or should we do things together? The status will always use this as uh, making you feel like you're alone, isolated, and scared if you want to be a libertarian. But under you know both situations, you're interacting with others. So the central question is not should we do things together or alone. Since we're always interacting, should it be done on a voluntary basis, which is much more civilized, much more equitable, and much more empowering, or should it be a system where some people have the right to coerce others? So chapter nine is the uh, positive alternative that I try to give people uh, once I have hopefully convinced them that progressivism is unjustified. All right. I like ending on a little positive note like that. Great idea, man. I mean, you're a little more hopeful and positive than uh, than I am. So maybe I I just need to start with that chapter and uh, and read that for sure. Uh, so tell everyone where they can go to get the book and other stuff that you I know you have a podcast also. So people need to know about that. Tell everyone about that. I just published episode 915 of the Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone podcast. You can find that as well as this book at libertarianinstitute.org. You can buy the paperback or hardcover on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. But I know money is tight for some people. So if you go to libertarianinstitute.org and go under the book section, you can get a free PDF of this book. That's awesome. So, Keith, you want to come on more often than every six months? I mean, I feel like it's been a long time. And uh, last time we talked was at a Freedom Fest back in whatever month that was uh, that we talked then. So we need to talk again sooner, right? Anytime, Nate. Thank you.